Our, our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. Listen now for God's word to us. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Poor Thomas. You know, history has not been kind to Thomas at all. I don't remember the last time I heard him reference without that shameful qualifier reminding us, reminding us of his doubt, right? We all know doubting Thomas. That's all we know about him, really. That famous line that he says has left an indelible stain on his reputation ever since. Unless I see the mark of his hands, I'm sorry, the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. So, we know him forever and always as Doubting Thomas. But, you know, to be honest, I, I can't say that I really blame him for what he said and for what he thought and probably felt in that moment. I mean, think about it like this. Have have you ever been in some kind of experience in a, in a group, a group of people, all of whom have, have some kind of inside joke or they've shared some kind of experience, some kind of special experience together, and you, you just weren't there, like you're just kind of on the outside looking in? I mean, it's, it's a lonely place to be. Someone says something, everyone erupts in laughter, right? And you kind of sort of laugh along quietly, not wanting to make it obvious that you don't get it and that you feel a little excluded. And then someone notices you awkwardly laughing along and 
something that you possibly couldn't understand, and they say to you, oh, sorry, I guess you had to be there, right? That's like the most obnoxious sentence in the English language. It's, it's so... Mm. But this is kind of where, where Thomas was, right? He was on the outside looking in, because it began on that Easter evening. Peter and the beloved disciple had been to the empty tomb. They didn't completely understand what it had meant, so they, they left and went home. And then Mary, Mary Magdalene, comes back later and tells them, I have seen the Lord, and explains to them what, what happened. She explains to them about the resurrection. And even after that, even after all the disciples had been through with Jesus, after hearing the good news of his resurrection, they're still in hiding for some reason, behind locked doors. Even in the light of the resurrection, they're still afraid, still hiding. Now, one important uh, side note to, to notice here is that when the gospel writer says that they were afraid of the Jews, that's why they were in hiding, most scholars recommend that it's important for us to understand this to mean very particularly the religious authorities in Jerusalem, not an indictment of Jews or Judaism in general. Because, of course, Jesus and all of his disciples were Jewish men, Jewish people, and that for the first several decades of Christianity, it was basically just kind of a separate faction or sect of Judaism, not a completely separate religion. So when we hear that they were afraid of the Jews, we should understand this as the author referring to a very particular group of people, not a kind of condemnation of an entire religion. And that this may kind of sound like an overly sensitive remark to make or kind of a PC disclaimer, but I think it's especially important, particularly when we live in a world where a man in Kansas can walk into Jewish community centers with one purpose, one purpose in mind, to, to murder Jewish people. And it's important to especially understand that verses like this, misunderstandings of verses like this, misinterpretations of verses like this, um, have contributed to that kind of hatred and vitriol. So we have to squash that whenever we can and say that this is not what the writer was referring to here. We're talking about a very particular uh, group of people, not an entire religion. So in the midst of this fear that they're experiencing, in the midst of this, this cowardice of the disciples, the resurrected Christ himself appears before them, stands among them, and says to them, Peace be with you. And then he shows them his wounds. And at that, once they see the wounds and they hear his voice, they begin to rejoice. And again, Jesus says, peace be with you. And then they realize that peace is indeed with them in the flesh. They are experiencing the fullness of God's peace in that moment. But there's only one problem with this little scenario, for Thomas, that is. He's not there. He he didn't get to experience this. He didn't get to see Christ in the flesh. He didn't get to hear Jesus say, peace be with you. He didn't get to hear, he didn't get to see the wounds in Christ's hands and feet and side. I mean, wouldn't you know it, it's the one time when Thomas goes out to get the guys a pizza that Jesus decides to show up. And when he returns, he gets back and there's something different about the room, that the fear has kind of left the place. There's a different feeling going on. That fear that had once consumed them and caused them to lock the doors and go into hiding had in some way been lifted. Suddenly, hope pervades this room. 
joy has swept over these disciples. And when Thomas returns, they tell him about all that they saw, describing in elaborate detail everything Jesus said, and even the wounds that were still present on his body. Wounds that they could see. Wounds that they could touch. His body that had been broken had had somehow been restored, yet still carrying the marks of what had happened to him. And Thomas, hearing all this, is completely dumbfounded, stunned. How could he have missed it? How could he have missed this opportunity? Would Jesus be coming back? Would he get another chance? I mean, we, we, with all of these things going on, in the heat of the, emo- of the moment, he's overcome by emotion. And it's probably one of those things that Thomas wishes he could have back. He wishes he could unsay all of that about having to see the, the marks of the nails and to put his fingers in the wounds. But at the same time, I mean, we have to remember that his desire to see the wounds and to touch them is not a desire for anything more than what the other disciples had already received. He's not looking for a special experience. He just wants to feel what they felt, see what they saw. Nothing more, nothing less. And so a whole week passes. This whole week of hearing it over and over and over. These other ten disciples talking all about how they saw the Lord, telling everyone about it. And Thomas is completely left out of that. Unable to to know what that experience was like. Completely missing out on the whole thing. That even though he was one of the twelve, one of the special Twelve disciples who had been with Jesus all along, he didn't get to experience that moment. He's essentially kind of like, you know, the the third string quarterback on the championship team. You know, sure, he gets a ring. Everyone's excited and he can be excited about that. But, you know, he didn't didn't get in a single snap all season. He just watched from the sidelines, not able to even participate in this joy and celebration because, because he missed it. It must have been one of the longest weeks of Thomas's life, hearing this story over and over and over and constantly being reminded that he was left out of it. And now he's been permanently branded as the doubter. I mean, it's interesting because we really don't know a whole lot about Thomas other than being named as one of the 12 disciples. He only shows up really two other times, both in John's Gospel. The first is the story of the raising of Lazarus. Jesus and and the disciples get word that their good friend Lazarus has grown terribly ill. So after two days, even after hearing this news, two days later, Jesus says to his disciples, it's time for us to go back to Judea. And the disciples remind Jesus that this isn't a very good idea because last time we were in Judea, there were people who wanted to throw some stones at you. But Jesus says, doesn't matter, we have to go anyway because Lazarus is dead. And Thomas, one of the few lines that he gets, he says this, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Thomas apparently wasn't quite as crippled by fear as the other disciples were. He seems to have been ready to go into the belly of the beast, to to risk his life even, to follow Christ wherever Christ said they should go. And of course, that that experience where, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. John tells us that when the news of that begins to spread, that's the moment when the religious authorities, when the leaders 
decide that Jesus needs to die. Now, the next time we hear from Thomas is a bit later during the Last Supper in what we call the farewell discourse in John's Gospel. It's this long speech given by Jesus after he washes their feet, uh, essentially preparing them for what life will be like when he's gone. And Jesus says to them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwellings. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to the place I am going. But Thomas, he's a bit confused by this. He, and he doesn't want to let you know this pass him by. So, so he interrupts and he says to Jesus, Well, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? To which Jesus responds with that famous line, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the image we get of Thomas, though very limited, is a man who is deeply, deeply committed to Christ. A man who at least says that he is willing to follow Christ to his death and wants desperately to know the way to follow Christ. I mean, it makes me wonder where he actually was on that day when the disciples were locked in this, in this room. Maybe he was the only one brave enough to be out in the streets publicly claiming, proclaiming Christ's resurrection. Maybe he was the only one who wasn't crippled by fear like the other disciples were. Maybe he's the only one who was not in hiding. The only one out there following the way of Christ, even putting his own life at risk while everyone else is behind locked doors, only to find that the reward for his faithfulness, the reward for him being out in the streets declaring the good news, is being left out of Jesus' appearance to the disciples. I mean, that's got to sting a little bit, don't you think? So perhaps it's more than doubt that we hear in his voice when he says that famous line. Perhaps we hear a bit of hurt, a bit of, why, why wasn't I a part of this? All he wants is what the other disciples got to experience as well. But instead, he's, he's left to fester for a whole week, this long and lonely week. But interestingly, when, when Jesus does appear to him, when Jesus comes back, it's a remarkably similar experience from the week before. One week later, the disciples are back in that very same house, in that same place, and Jesus once again appears among them, stands among them and says, Peace be with you. And then immediately he turns to Thomas and offers him exactly what it was he desired. He offers him the opportunity to see his wounds, to touch his wounds. And then Jesus tells him, Do not doubt, but believe. But doubt isn't quite right here. I don't think it's really the right translation. Uh, and I think it's partially due to this uh, unfortunate translation that Thomas has been so maligned throughout Christian history. I think a better translation of what Jesus says would be, do not be unfaithful, but faithful. Because Thomas, like all of us, like all the other disciples who ran and deserted Jesus, struggles with what it means to be faithful. 
what it means to be faithful to Christ in the midst of rapidly changing circumstances. For the longest time, whenever I would read this story, I heard nothing but judgment in Christ's words to Thomas. But I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that instead we should be hearing words of encouragement. Be faithful, Thomas. Keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. Thomas, you wanted to know the way. You wanted to know the way. This is it. Be faithful. And Thomas responds, and doesn't get any credit for it, but responds with what is perhaps the most profound kind of statement of faith and revelation of who Christ is in all four Gospels. He says simply, My Lord and my God. Few, if any, ever recognize Christ's divinity uh, in that way, to go so far as to explicitly call Jesus God. I mean, it's a bit ironic, isn't it, that the man that we call Doubting Thomas is the one guy who makes such a profound statement revealing the true nature of Christ. And surely, Thomas also should deserve some credit for the fact that he even came back at all. I mean, in the midst of his hurt, his confusion, and perhaps even some doubt, he comes back to that place where the others had met Christ, hoping against hope that maybe he'll show up again. Maybe he'll come back. That, that he might also be able to see and to touch the wounds of his Lord and his God. I mean, if there were ever a way to sell people on coming to church every week, this is it, right? You never know when Jesus is going to show up. But, I mean, this is, this is who we are, right? This is what we do as well. I think all of us would readily admit that it's a struggle to be faithful each and every day, day after day after day. That, that we too struggle with how to live out our faith, how to be faithful to Christ in the midst of a world that is rapidly changing around us, struggling with doubt, with uncertainty, with fear. Yet we come back, week after week after week, we come back in hopes that Jesus will meet us here in this place, that Jesus himself will stand among us and say to us, peace be with you. Of course, Christ's presence and, and Christ's voice has never been limited to a single space nor confined to a church building, but there is something special, sacred even, about being together with our sisters and brothers, listening for Christ's voice in community, in relationship with one another. So, like Thomas, even in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our uncertainties, and like the other disciples, in the midst of our fears, let us continue to listen together, to listen for Christ's voice together, that we too might learn to be faithful. Amen.